Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Listening to the Luke Haskell Show on the Four Persons Network. Luke takes a deep dive every show into history, theology, and scripture. If you want to truly be educated, make way for the hammer of heretics himself, ladies and gentlemen, Luke Haskell. Not too many people are using it for the for the kingdom, but we are. 
So, uh, what are we what are we covering tonight? We're gonna we're, we're gonna blow the whole born again ideology up tonight, right? We're gonna go really deep into uh, the the born again uh, modern movement, and we're gonna look really deep in, into the true nature of being born again, and. That's going to include some deep mystagogy. And excuse the phone in the background. <laughs> I'm at my in-laws house uh, and today, so I'm set up mobile. And you were just talking about this technology. And, uh, you know, I moved mine from my house to uh, my in-laws house now. So uh, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, really, it's just really amazing. Yeah. There was a time in my life when, you know, this kind of thing would require a studio and, and you had to listen on your car radio or your car and your radio in your house, you know, and, and, and the thing about the car radio is if you got so many miles away, you lost the signal. And uh, this <laughs> idea of satellite radio and internet and it just, it, it's unbelievable. Another thing about that though is we're at a point now where, you know, you could have so much truth before your very eyes. You could have all the fathers right there in front of you. So this thing with, uh, you know, uh, this doctrine of uh, invincible ignorance is a is a real tough one for people right now. Mm-hmm. And yet, and yet, denial and and uh, denial of even basic truth is never been higher than it is than it is now. Uh, people don't want to believe even the most basic facts nowadays. Well, we're going to go over some things. And, you know, I uh, I often call Protestantism in general uh, a man-made construct. I don't do this to be to ridicule or to be cruel. Uh, I do it because you cannot have true unity, you know, without truth. And sometimes, you know, truth's, truth's going to bite a little bit. Uh, I do have a kind of a direct nature, though, uh, because I, I retired as a lieutenant from the prison system where I was judge and jury from basically infractions to felonies. And we judge things by the preponderance of the evidence where – it is not the amount of evidence that is needed to prove a case, but the quality of the evidence. And the thing about the Catholic faith, though, is that we have an overwhelming amount of quality evidence for our faith. We also have a huge amount of quality evidence showing that Protestantism is, is a tradition of man. It's actually what they accuse Catholics of being. So a word they like to flow, flow around, uh, uh, throw around at Catholics just a little bit. You hear it every, every once in a while. Of course, I'm being facetious. <laughs> uh, it, it's, a, it's a fact that Protestantism does not only look different from the faith of the disciples, the apostles, but it's, it's not even close. It's, it's worlds apart from it. And in the foundation for the creation of Protestantism is this idea that in their reformation, they're returning to clear biblical Christianity. Yet there is something in the result of this thinking that separates people from common sense. If the results of this 
so-called return to biblical Christianity creates an image of faith that looks worlds apart from the faith of the early church. Uh, and it's clear that uh, they did not achieve their objective. But what happened was that man in fallen nature with a bias against the Catholic Church, now this is either actively or subconsciously. For many people, subconsciously, because you know, these people are very devoted to God and, and, and the love of Christ. You know. But they looked at Scripture through a process of separation from the Catholic Church. So this led to, you know, uh, I got to be blunt on this, it led to a dumbing down of theological concepts. Because in trying to establish a different understanding other than 1,400 years of truth, this body of false exegesis and denial of historical context, new novel concepts and definitions then became the tradition Protestantism sees scripture through. So this creation uh, is just uh, – you know, the devil is a master theologian. So much of a master that he created an entire different construct of Christianity of new novel false exegesis concepts and definitions as a religion of anti-Catholicism. And those who live in it are, you know, it's, it's you know, like I said, you know, I, I, see, I see people very dedicated to God, you know, who are Protestants. But – what they're living is in they're oblivious to the deception. So we must be wise as serpents and, and gentle as doves. We must use reason, but tempered with humility. Uh, a new doctrine would have screened out across you know the pages of history greater than the Arian heresy because of this call to always teach the same truths. You know, Paul warns the church. I therefore, a prisoner in the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation in which you are called, with all humility and mildness and patience, supporting one another in charity, careful to keep the unity of the spirit of, tr of the bond of peace, one body and one spirit, as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, not just getting wet. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all, in and all. So in, in 1 Corinthians, he says, he says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no schisms among you, but that you be perfect in the same mind and the same judgment. So we're at a time now where we have separ completely separated from this same mind and same judgment. And uh, uh, the verses I just read, can a born-again movement believer use these verses as a litmus test for their faith, showing their believers uh, li live by them 2,000 years ago? But also, they would have to have shown the death of the Lord to the Father for 2,000 years, being perfectly united in one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. For Paul says, For as often as you shall eat this bread and drink this cup, you will show the death of the Lord until he comes again. So if they're living in truth, they will be following this precept to show the death of the Lord until the end of time. 
and there's only one way you could do this, is through a valid Eucharist. Yeah. You know, when I look at Protestantism, I see it foreshadowed in, in, in the Bible very clearly. Jesus saw it coming. He talked about the house built on the rock versus the house built on sand. It talked about the branches that would be connected to the vine and the branches that would not be connected to the vine. And he talked in John 17 about how uh, Satan desires to sift us through his fingers like sand. Clearly he saw the Protestant Reformation uh, coming through, through uh, you know, coming to pass. And it is, it is a construct, just like you said, it is a construct that is not functionally and structurally built as a model to find truth. If if there are no if if I asked you to build me a house, Luke, and I said I want the house to be three stories and I want it to be twenty six hundred square feet and I want it to have four bedrooms, if you and I can't agree on what a foot is, if I say a foot is twelve inches but you say a foot is fourteen inches the house you end up building is going to look very much different than the house that I intended for you to build. And when you break free from the church and decide that I can read the scriptures and define everything as, as I choose to define it, how would you be surprised that we would get to where we are? Especially with, uh, you know, man's fallen nature. And so, there's there's actually there's kind of a separation from logical deduction in, in this and it's uh so if protestantism is true then the apostles lied to their disciples or the disciples that were in both the east and the west spreading out around the known world they would have them got together and created a sinister plan that they would create an entirely different image of faith. And no one in history challenged this as a new image. We can't find any challenge in history. So they did a lot more than pull a rabbit out of a hat. They would have had to have manipulated the very foundation of Christianity into a completely different image. And it had to have been happen- happening while the apostles were still alive. Because we we hear you know the Catholicity in the teaching of disciples and apostles, so they in turn would have had to have changed time and space basically, and God would have have lied when He said the gates of hell should not prevail against the church. Uh, for the disciples and the apostles to have uh, taught a false faith, then they would have to have gotten together in a huge group and created a completely different religion with bishops, priests, and deacons. Uh, Ignatius would have created the lie when he said bishops should do the will of the church at Rome. Irenaeus would have created the lie when he said all churches must be united to the church at Rome in order to keep the true faith. And you know, it's they would have been creating the formation of doctrine of sacraments and belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, the Holy Mass as a true Passover, Mary as a true Eve, mother of all the living, and the true Ark of the Covenant. Baptism as being saved by the blood of the Lamb. Destruction of original sin. Entrance into the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood. Entrance into the family of God. 
and even divinization, then spread this lie everywhere the apostles went, convincing those who heard the apostles to choose their alternative Christianity over the apostles. They would have had to live the lie, and many would have been martyred for that lie, and they would have have gotten the whole Christian world to be quiet about the lie. And it, it, it just it, it just it it goes against common sense because and at the same time uh, the church was living the faith for about 300 years before they you know canonize the scripture so so after 300 years they would have chose the correct books guided by the holy spirit <laughs> and yet the church was adamant about keeping the unity of faith and the obedience in in the in obedience to the faith and this is basically the background that I, I wanted to establish before we move on to this you know, the understanding of uh, the, the born-again movement and Protestantism in, in general. I wanted to basically express the, the lack of logic you know, uh, behind these things. I'm sorry. I was just uh, – I was listening to you, but I was trying to connect on a call uh, – Chantal tried to call in from the Philippines, but we couldn't make the connection. Well, this is how far you have to go if you think Protestantism is returning to the faith, uh, to the faith of the apostles. It's actually, you know, it's ridiculous and most likely established in the mind through a diabolical influence, as I hate to say. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's very sad. Anything that really creates division is sad. Well, not only that, but what it does is. I mean, let's face it. This is this is one of the problems with Protestantism. Let's face it. Catholicism is hard. <laughs> it's 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 hard to be a um, a practicing Catholic when when we you know truly struggle with sin and we struggle with suffering and 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 all of these things. And uh, part of the attraction of the Protestant uh, uh, movement, let's face it, Luke. It's a, it's a lot easier. Candy instead of vegetables. Mm-hmm. But candy's not going to get you to heaven. <laughs> it's going to rot your teeth. Right. <laughs> <laughs> rot your brain. Rot your soul. <laughs> Please continue. So, like, like I said, I, want, I wanted to put that picture in people's minds because we're going to deal in reason. A lot of people you know, end up treating the, the Bible like a magic eight ball, like it applies to them. In the 21st century, they look at that first before they even apply it by looking at the whole image of the early church. So we're going to go into the true nature of born again, but we're first going to, you know, look at how this, you know, this movement of separating born again from baptism developed. So the born again movement uh, that separated baptism from being born again, it appears to have its beginnings in the early 19th century when Protestantism began to evolve into this uh, kind of a liberalism of fundamentals. And uh, I believe Charles uh, Parnham, uh, he was around, uh, he died in around 1929. He had a large influence in this also. He was very heavily involved in uh, emotions. And uh, like we were discussing, emotions can be used against us. Uh, he and his student, William Seymour, was central in developing Pentecostalism. So Seymour started what was known as the Azusa Street uh, Revival in Los Angeles. 
and uh, which was a huge influence of the Pentecostal and charismatic movement. Uh, he was actually raised Catholic, but uh, well, it, it's a given that uh, he didn't understand his didn't understand his Catholic faith. No one who leaves the church had the faith to truly see the church, or they were just never taught properly. And extreme emotionalism of Pentecostalism led to this confirmation of the Holy Spirit through things like, things like speaking in tongues, which in, in most cases is gibberish. You know, they're, 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 there's true cases, but in most cases is gibberish. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's group suggestion, basically. So right. Parham rejected denominationalism as he formed through his beliefs another denomination. So this even led to things like you know the you see the saint, the the modern snake charmers you know thinking they're filled with the Holy Spirit playing with snakes. <laughs> this is how far you know this Pentecostalism went. So as what happens on a regular basis through the diabolical doctrine of Scripture alone, Seymour broke with Parnham in um, 1906 over the theological difference. And one thing that was good about this was that. It was blacks and whites praising God together, yet the universal Catholic Church has welcomed in all races since the beginning of Christianity. The eternal soul has no color, and we, we focus on what nurtures the eternal soul. But by about 1907, the missionaries of Azusa Street had reached Mexico, Canada, Western Europe, Middle East, West Africa, parts of Asia, uh, as we move on, we will see that Satan will do everything he can to promote a heretical faith, and this is a very heretical faith. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, as as we move on, we we, we need to uh, well train of thought. You need uh, to remember. Yeah, we, we we need to remember that Jesus raised obedience above prophecy and miracles, casting out demons. And uh, we discussed this before, but it, it, it's, it's really pertinent. Uh, most likely to keep us on the narrow road of the sacramental life, he, he, you know, he established this obedience. And Satan can mimic, you know, all, th- all, all three of these things. Uh, uh, Matthew Matthew seven twenty one tells us, "Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the, into the kingdom of heaven." But he that doth the will of my Father who is in heaven, he shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, cast out devils in thy name, done many miracles in thy name? And then will I profess unto him, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work iniquity. So Satan can mimic prophecy. He can mimic you know, having his, has, his demons you know, just uh, just leave bodies in order to promote a heretical faith from somebody who's outside the church casting out demons. Mm-hmm. They could mimic miracles. So we're we're dealing with something here that of a preternatural intelligence is on a different plane of reality, and so we really got to be careful about things like you know the, the speaking in tongues and things. Right. And from uh, you know from the beginning Christianity, which was Catholic Christianity, this speaking in tongues was actually a gift to the Catholic Church. 
in order for the apostles and their disciples to be able to speak to people in different lands who spoke different languages. So it was actually to edify the Catholic Church, the universal church. The church became Catholic when circumcision for Jews was fulfilled in baptism into Christ Jesus for everyone. That's our universal Catholic Church from the very beginning. So you can look at different graphs. Everywhere the apostles and their disciples went, the lands went from paganism to Catholicism, not Protestantism. didn't exist for another 1,500 years. So all different lands of different languages. So it was the grace of tongues given to the Catholic Church that began to unite the world. Later, it was even the teachings of the Catholic Church that established peace through international law, acknowledging man receives his dignity by being God's creation. Yeah. So I guess it was only obvious that Satan would then manipulate this gift of tongues and create division with it where previously there was unity with it. And uh, you know, he, he turns everything upside down. So when it comes to tongues, uh, let's see here. So Paul writes, he who speaks in a, t in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues. And here's his disclaimer, unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. Right. And again, we see... Uh, uh, Paul is only referring to prophecy tempered by the authority of the church. He's talking to people inside the church. So the same Paul mm -hmm. said, obey your prelates who have the rule over you, for they watch over your souls. Uh, he would have called it heresy to obey any prelates outside the church, which James at the Council of Jerusalem referred to as the reestablished kingdom of David. This is the church. When Paul says you have come to Mount Zion, to the new Jerusalem. Well, Mount Zion is the prophecy fulfilled of where we will go in order to learn the wisdom of God. Paul says, obey your prelates. He's talking about the prelates who are in this one church formed at Pentecost, Mount Zion, and through which the wisdom of God comes to us through, by way of the Holy Spirit. So he addresses interpretation of tongues as more important. So it's not gibberish when it's it's true, but uh, you know it was the gift that spread the faith to foreign lands to people of different languages. Uh, we see this when we read Acts two, uh, in Luke's writing. Uh, now there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven, and when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded in mind. Because that every man heard them speak in his own tongue, and they were all amazed and wondered, saying, Behold, are not all of these that speak Galilean? And how have we heard every man our own tongue, wherein we were born, Parthians and Medes and Alamites and inhabitants of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia? Uh, Egypt and parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews also and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we have heard them speak in our own tongues 
the wonderful works of God. And so it, you can look at this graph, and you could go through all those areas of the country, and they all went from paganism to Catholicism. So it, so it, it was to confirm really faith through emotionalism. Uh, yeah, Satan loves emotionalism. So what you're saying here is that the miracle of tongues was a miracle of hearing, not of speaking, and it was basically the Tower of Babel in reverse. So it, it, it's not the, the, the miracle is that everyone heard in their own language, not that uh, the disciples, the apostles uh, spoke in, in some bizarre language. It's that each of these people heard in their own language is a miracle, miracle of hearing, not of speaking. And it was like you said, it was for the broadening of the, it was for the miracle of the broadening of the church, not for the elevation or, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it's not for the individual. It's not to make a spectacle Edifying. of the individual, but it's for, it's for the edification of the church. Go ahead, please continue. And that was great because I didn't even think of that. Yes, they were they were speaking in their own tongue, and everybody else was hearing it in their own language. It, 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 it's so simple, but it's so profound. So, yeah. uh, so the so-called original reformers, Luther and Calvin, knew nothing about being born again separate from baptism. And uh, actually, in, in fact, Calvin did not even think you could be saved without the Eucharist. And uh, so his idea of predestination and uh, election actually include predestination by baptism into the sacramental life. And, yeah. uh, you know, you, uh, this is something that Calvinists probably probably want to keep under the under the hood there. But uh, there's just. They had they have such a different looking faith, and Calvin describes baptism as the sign of initiation by which we are received into the society of the church, in order that grafted in Christ we may be reckoned among God's children. Uh, he goes on and speaks of the dual purpose or ends of baptism, and uh, actually for all the sacraments as consisting in serving our faith before God and in serving our confession or profession of belonging to Christ before men. And, you know, Luther is definitely not, a, you know, born-again Christian either. He says, tutored holy baptism, thereby to clothe you with his righteousness. In a tantamount to his saying, my righteousness shall be your righteousness, my innocence your innocence. Your sins indeed are great, but my baptism I bestowed on you, my righteousness, I stripped death from you and clothed you with my life. So baptism has always been understood to include uh, uh, this, this righteousness, this, this being clothed in, in God, because we see the words quickening and, and sealing in Scripture. And Paul writes... Did you want to say something? No. no. Okay, so Paul, Paul writes to the Corinthians. The first man, Adam, was made into a living soul. The last, Adam, into a quickening spirit. And he's talking to people who have been baptized. 
they've been quickened through that baptism. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So this is obviously a lot more than getting wet. He says this new life begins this new life begins in a sealing of the Holy Spirit. And Christ in baptism is a sign and seal of that circumcision fulfilled. So circumcision is a sign of the promise of Abraham. Baptism's entrance into the promise fulfilled. Uh, we'll go into uh, more detail on, on this uh, word promise a little later. Now, to the Colossians, Paul, Paul writes, uh, i find it here. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power working of God, who raised him from the dead. <coughs> Excuse me. So, and if I could we, just interject something really quick. Um, sure. To, to amplify this point that you're making about um, baptism actually being a rebirth, a new birth, it was this was foreshadowed in the Old Testament because circumcision, which foreshadowed baptism took place on the eighth day of, of the boy's life. Um, in fact, in the case of Jesus, it was on January 1st, the eighth day of his life. And, of course, the eighth day is the first day of the new creation. So it, it, it all ties together and, and shows that it is a new creation. It's, it's that seamless fabric, and, and it's just, you know, you could... St- study it for your entire lifetime and never stop wondering because you just go deeper and deeper into things. You know, uh, the manuscript of the shepherd of Hermas is a good example of the early faith and how they understood, you know, the, the apostolic uh, teachings. So the, the, the shepherd of Hermas is dated between 140 and about 154 AD. And we read, we read here, yeah, let me get to it. Uh, While you're looking that up, I just want to make a shout out to uh, our friend Michael C. Benko, who's living in, uh, listening in New Jersey. Um, hope you're doing well tonight, Michael. Please continue. Okay. So we read, they're obliged to answer to ascend through water in order that they might be made alive. For unless they laid aside the deadness of their life, they could not in any other way enter the kingdom of God. For he continued, before a man bears the name of the Son of God, he's dead. But when he receives the seal, he lays aside his deadness and obtains life. The seal then is the water. They descended into the water dead, and they arise alive. And to them, accordingly, was the seal preached, and they made use of it, that they might enter into the kingdom of God. So even entering into this spiritual kingdom, the, nobody in the early church separates that from baptism. So again, far from just getting wet. 
Yeah, I'm agreeing with you. Go ahead. So what happened? How did people separate from uh, a most detrimental aspect of living as a Christian? And it's, it is very, very detrimental. I mean, you separate from the new covenant if you separate from baptism. So Baptists, Methodists, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, and Evangelicals, all groups created by man after 1,500 years of Christianity and later, they got together in, this, in, in, in their own opinions, developed a system of theology in a 12-volume book called The Fundamentals. So the born-again movement that began to grow in the Philippines adapted their doctrine from this 12-volume book, and this evolved into things like the Calvary Chapel movement run by Chuck Smith in Costa Mesa, California. And I, I kind of grew up in, in the middle of this. I lived in Fountain Valley, which was just a 10-minute drive from Calvary, Calvary uh, Chapel. Uh, before I began to truly understand my faith, I, I actually went there as a kid. And now that's one of the largest, as I understand, one of the largest Protestant denominations uh, on the West Coast, if not in the country, right? I think it's all over the country, yeah. All right, well, so let's look further at the, the history Protestants have to ignore for, for a moment. Uh, like, like, like I was ta- telling you about, you know, I... I judge things by the preponderance of the evidence, but you know, with Catholicism, you got a heck of a lot of credible evidence. So we read from Justin Martyr, as many as are persuaded and believe that what we Christians teach and say is true and undertake to be able to live accordingly are brought by us where there is water and are regenerated in the same manner in which we were ourselves regenerated. For in the name of God, the Father, and, and the Lord of the universe, and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in other words, Trinitarian baptism, they then received the washing with water. For Christ also said, except you be born again, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. This was understood as being born again from the, from, from the beginning, and it included regeneration. Uh, we go to Hippolytus. And Hippolytus says, perhaps someone will ask, what does it conduce unto piety to be baptized? In the first place, that you do what has seemed good to God. In the next place, being born again of water unto God, so that you change your first birth, which was from concupiscence, and are able to attain salvation, which would otherwise be impossible. These are very strong words. For thus the prophet has sworn to us, amen, I say to you, unless you're born again of with living water into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, <coughs> excuse me, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, fly to the water, for this alone can extinguish the fire. He who will not come to the water still carries around with him the spirit of insanity, for the sake of which he will not come to, to the living water. For his own salvation. Now, this is Hippolytus writing in 217, about 100 years before the Catholic Church put the Bible together, calling people insane who were not going to be baptized. And so in order to see how diabolical this born-again movement is, I want to go over what the grace of baptism does for us so we can see how much the born-again movement actually separated people from true Christianity. 
uh, from the gifts of God. So we'll summar, we'll summarize this, everything, all the graces of baptism, and then we're going to spend some time proving it. So what is baptism? And this is what I've developed just from studying and looking and, and praying and looking at the mystagogy of things. And baptism is grace given freely, being saved by the mystical water, blood, and spirit of Christ that flows from the true Adam's rib, giving birth to his bride, his church, and perpetuating his bride through time. Baptism flows from the cross, the tree of life, destroying original sin, establishing redemption from original sin, sanctification from past sins, entrance into the promise that Abraham fulfilled as the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood, that has entered the family of God and has become divinized, so that with the hosts of heaven, through our one mediator and high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, who is head of the body, enter the holies, and with the hosts of heaven, present the true Passover for the general redemption of the world before the Father. We do not enter the spiritual reality of the true Passover without the seal of baptism on our soul. Uh, we're going to go pretty deep with this discussion. So this is what's going on when Paul says, for as often as you shall eat this bread and drink this cup, you will show the death of the Lord until he comes again. And uh, Catholics could see this because we visualize it in the Mass. We experience the mystagogy. So Paul says, Now I make known unto you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast after what manner I preached unto you unless you have believed in vain. So many disclaimers. So Paul preached the sacramental life in obedience to the faith. Being born again through baptism is the beginning of living the gospel. So the way of the sacramental life in transforming grace is what we are to hold fast to. So it all hinges on our understanding of grace. They so fundamentally don't understand what grace is uh, they reduce grace to um, uh, disposition. God, uh, God's kind disposition, that's what they reduce grace to. Grace goes so much further than that, so much deeper than that. Yeah, it's uh, amazingly deeper. And just just on a simple surface level of grace, the prophecy fulfilled the laws written on our hearts as opposed to the letter of the law for Jews only of rule, fear, and temporal punishment is grace giving freely that all Christians who believe in the love of the cross are supposed to raise to the Beatitudes in their process of transforming grace through which we are saved. All the sacraments are grace given freely. Uh, the true Passover for the general redemption of the world uh, in the Holy Mass is grace given freely. So, you know, grace is everywhere within the church. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to take another sip of water here. <laughs> I got a frog in my throat tonight. So when we get into these debate rooms and we are told by Protestants that they are saved by the blood of Christ, um, I tend to ask them, okay, how is that blood of Christ applied? The, these things are not ambiguous when you actually get into the deep mystagogy of Scripture. 
So they would say it was applied when I found Christ and through faith. Um, I would then respond, do you find a biblical principle for this? And if they're knowledgeable in their Protestant faith, they, they would respond with a verse such as Ephesians 1, 7 and 8. Uh, this tells us, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood. Uh, and where am I at? The forgiveness is, uh, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, he lavages uh, on us. So I would then ask, uh, do you see any reference to forgiveness of future sins here? You know, the verse doesn't show future sins. It just gives, gives the word sins. So it would then imply that this means future sins like it is implied that it is finished somehow means eternal security is established, which is, uh, you know, uh, complete conjecture. So I would right. show them another example of forgiveness of past sins. And if we look at Second Peter 1, we read, For if these things be with you and abound, they will make you to be neither empty nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he that hath not these things with him is blind and groping, having forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, brethren, labor the more that by good works you may make sure your calling and election. So is this not the same uh, Peter who said, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins? And so obviously Peter believed that baptism destroys past sins. Mm-hmm. And there's something else that Peter believed too. Uh, Peter believed that you could fall from uh, from from that height. Uh, he talks about the dog that returns to its own vomit. So obviously Peter didn't believe that we have a one-time forgiveness of all sins, past, present, and future. Clearly Peter did not believe that. No, and and, and nobody in early Christianity did either. I mean. Uh, up through Martin Luther, there's, there's just really nothing there. So being purged of past sins is occurring through baptism here. And in Second Peter, Peter tells those who are purged of past sins, they must secure their election through good works. But uh, uh, we go on another direction, you know, for an hour in that way, but we'll, we'll stick to this for now. But Paul goes further and shows us how the blood of Christ is involved in this purge of the past sins. This is the very beginning of how we're just going to start developing this mystagogy. Uh, Paul says, being justified freely by his grace, the redemption through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath proposed, proposed to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to the showing of his justice for the remission of former sins. So Peter purged of past sins. Paul, remission of former sins, and Peter at, the, at, at Pentecost, uh, be baptized for the remission of your sins. So you'll find that every verse Protestants try and use against Catholics, when placed in proper context in light of the New Covenant, simply express Catholic truth. 
it's a Judeo-Catholic book. You can't get around this. And this is why I talked about this, you know, this sad dumbing down, because you have to dumb that down, this theology, in order to separate from, you know, 1,500 years of truth. So in Romans 3, 4, you see the blood, you see the grace, you see redemption, specifically of former sins in this context, not future ones. And of course, you see faith for those of the age of reason. And it was the faith of the parents that brought the children into the promise, just like it is the faith of the parents that brings the parent that brings the child into the promise fulfilled. So Protestant has a much more individualistic image of salvation, while Jews and Catholics understand salvation through being inside a covenant family. And the word it's, it's really fascinating because the word covenant goes back to the ancient Semitic word berit which shows a covenant bond through a sharing of blood. Uh, when, when God told the Jewish people, I will be a God and you will be my people. I mean, this was a covenant bond, but it was an imperfect type where Christ fulfilled that in his actual glorified body and blood. So the blood of Christ destroys our past sins at baptism. We see an amazing vision of this covenant and a sharing of blood as Paul writes a rhetorical question to those in the church celebrating the Holy Mass. He says, the chalice of benediction which we bless, is this not communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is this not partaking of the body of the Lord? So this is covenant. This is family. This is barit. This is the sharing in the actual glorified blood of Christ. Right. And anyone who would dispute that, let me just point out that the word covenant appears over 400 times in Scripture. 400 times. I would say that's a point of emphasis. <laughs> Please continue. <laughs> yeah, well, people are not going to understand the epistles unless they actually begin to understand that they are written to those who were already baptized into the church, which the church understood as grace given freely. Uh, who they're not going to understand it if they don't see that they're living the sacramental life in obedience to the faith, which is the narrow road of transforming grace for which we are saved. And the epistles address the churches of the apostles already established with bishop, priests, and deacons, and they're not a catechism of faith. They only address what was pressing on the mind of the author at the time to people who were already living the faith, and apostolic tradition was simply just the faith lived. You know, beyond those, you know, epistles was an entire life of the apostles and the church. And that entire life is what was moved on from the apostles to the disciples, the apostles to their disciples and so on. So, of course, some of the, uh, the epistles address bishops of, of the churches, such as Titus being the bishop of Crete and Timothy being the bishop of Ephesus. Mark ended up being the bishop of Alexandria, and uh, they all ordained priests of the church, as we see in, uh, in Titus 1.5, where Paul basically tells uh, 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 Titus, the bishop of Crete, uh, this is why I placed you here, to, to ordain priests in every city as I appointed you. So the blood of Christ, that's just a symbolic thing, right? We don't actually receive the actual blood of Christ, right? It's just, it just, it's just a symbol. It's just all symbolic, right? Didn't Paul say something to Timothy about a about a church that would 
uh, make a pretense of religion while denying its power? Yeah, it's 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 sad because you know um, most Catholics just you know kind of cry out for unity, cry out for people to see the deep spiritual uh, nature uh, of Scripture and to feel to experience through faith the depths of the Mass. Yeah, I so, just uh, I wish one day, uh, Luke, that we could attend uh, a mass and have the veil removed and and see if it, I I think we would probably die of, of of shock just seeing what's going on with with the mass. It's an actual participation in the heavenly worship. It's not just uh, it's not entertainment. Well, Paul, who says, you know, we should live by faith, not not by sight. Basically, you know, he was taken up to heaven and he saw the vision of it. And we see a little glimpse of it in Hebrews twelve twenty two. You have come to Mount Zion, to the new Jerusalem, the church of the firstborn, to Jesus Christ, mediator of the new covenant, to thousands of angels, right. to uh, 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 the uh, blood that speaks better than that of Abel. We have come and, to our mediator. This is not yep. just prayer. This is the body of Christ, with Christ as the head of the body, mediating for the true redemption of the world, the true Passover. Right, and John saw it in the first eight chapters of the book of Revelation as well. Same exact yes. scenario. He was called up to heaven and, and witnessed the heavenly worship. And that's, what we, and that's what our mass is developed around. Mm-hmm. So how did the early church understand that the blood of Christ is applied at baptism? Uh, of course, first through the infusion of knowledge into the church uh, at Pentecost. Uh, the apostles were kind of uh, uh, kind of like you know lost puppies you know before the infusion of the Holy Spirit. So I mean, before that, they, you know they actually thought the cross was a failure. So after, it's a world of change. So in many ways, um, actually, John tells us, Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And is the Spirit that testifieth that Christ is the truth. And there are three who give testimony in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that give testimony on earth, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three are one. So John, who was infused with understanding through the Holy Spirit, does not separate the water, blood, and spirit as testimony, and neither should we. I mean, Jesus told the apostles, but when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will teach you all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but with things soever he shall hear, he shall speak. And the things that are to come, he shall show you. So these are teachings of of deep spiritual nature uh, given through the Holy Spirit to the church. Right. Luke, in all fairness, though, that's a disputed text, isn't it? Don't don't some versions of the Bible dispute the inclusion of that of that those particular verses? Yeah, they do, and and you know others don't. Uh, There there's there's like. on both sides of the issue, there's you know there's there's people, 
So, but we could simply use that verse to, to show deeper truths in the mystagogy. So we don't actually need to have that verse to actually see this coming together. There's a bunch of other things that show it. So it's actually expressing something that's already in the mystagogy and in, in, the, in, the, in the deep spiritual nature of the church. So this also applies to the church through all time. And the Great Commission is the making of disciples through a Trinitarian baptism. So Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so the Spirit and the water and the blood is one. Uh, and if someone says that the Holy Spirit is not present at baptism, then you're denying God's words. It's God who says, um, baptize in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. So baptism is an invocation of the Trinity, which includes the Holy Spirit, and baptism the Trinity is actually uh, an exorcism. So we see the Spirit and the water and the blood here, and remember, we see it here in the destruction of past sins. So being justified freely by his grace, Paul says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath proposed to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to the showing of his justice for the remission of form of sins. So uh, I wanted to repeat this because it, it's so important. Paul is expressing the same in his letters to the Ephesians, even though we do not see the word baptism. So he's writing to those who were already taught that the blood of Christ is applied to baptism. He did not separate the testimony of the water, blood, and spirit, which is one. He often does not use the word baptism, writing to the, the church who were already baptized, but in, in many different writings, he expresses the grace of that baptism. He doesn't need to use the word baptism every time to people who he stayed with up to three years and explain to them everything that baptism does before they're baptized. So repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Through his blood is the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, I don't know what part of that our Protestant brothers can't understand repent be baptized for the remission of your sins uh, to me that's there's no gray area there I, I don't understand how they have a problem with that i think a lot of it comes down to not being wanting to be obedience to the faith and obedience to the faith is how do you live the new covenant without obedience to the faith of the religion ritual of the of the new covenant it just doesn't make sense so and 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 it's not like, you know, the it was, you know, the first uh, reformers who actually separated the blood from baptism. Uh, Calvin also understood that through baptism, the blood of Christ is applied to the soul in an original sin. The farther back you go, the more the schematics actually look Catholic. Uh, Calvin writes, forgiveness, which at our first regeneration received by baptism alone. We are washed from our sins by the blood of Christ. So people have created an entire different construct of faith in their desire to separate from the Catholic Church. And since it's all man-made, it'll all just continue to, you know, wash down further and further God's truths. And you can see Satan's hands all over it. I mean, you know, if you were going to construct a religion to try to destroy the Christian faith, you would want to separate people from baptism. You would want to separate people from the sacraments. You would want to separate people from the unity of the church. I mean, it's 
very clear it's diabolical. Like like you said, you described it perfectly. It's absolutely diabolical. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's like I said. I, you know, I can't use the word sad enough. You know, uh, the mysteries in the law often show us how the sacraments affect the soul. This is what this is the mystagogy. This is so much of what they miss by not living the sacramental life. And I think the primary reason God created the Levitical laws uh, is is because of these mysteries. Jesus said, "I had not to come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law." So to make the types into their, into their heavenly realities. And a lot of these laws would simply look they, they look foolish unless their purpose was to show our souls or to speak to our souls at higher spiritual truths. So the Bible is a creation of an eternal God. It is a love story between a perfect groom and an imperfect bride, if you want to sum up the, the entire Bible. So we can, through humility in the mystery of the red heifer, contemplate how the grace given freely of baptism is being saved from past sins through the blood of Christ applied to our very souls by way of faith in our baptism entrance into the flesh of Christ. So if we read about the, you know, in the old Testament about the red heifer, I'm, I'm just go ahead and read this and I'm going to add some, some imagery in it as we go. Touches the corpse of a man and is not sprinkled with the mixture shall profane the tabernacle of the Lord and shall perish out of Israel. Now, think of this imagery. James at the Council of Jerusalem explained that the kingdom of David has been reestablished in the church. Uh, uh, James says, on that day, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. He's quoting Amos. Paul says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the new Jerusalem. And, of course, Jesus tells Peter, Peter, you're a rock. So, uh, let's move on. So because he was not sprinkled with the water of expiation – he shall be unclean, and his uncleanness shall remain upon him. So place these words in your thoughts. Baptism now saves you. Unclean is unbaptized. Now let's move on. And they shall take the ashes of the burning and of the sin offering, and shall pour living waters upon them into a vessel. And a man that is clean shall dip hyssop in them, shall sprinkle therein all the tent and all the furniture and the men that are defiled with touching any such thing. And in this manner, he that is clean shall purify the unclean on the third and on the seventh day. And being expiated the seventh day, he shall wash both himself and his garments and be unclean until the evening. And if any man be not expiated after this rite, his soul shall perish out of the midst of the church. Because he hath profaned, profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, and not sprinkled with the water of purification. Now place these words in your mind: Wear your wedding garments, or there be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Unless you are born again of water and spirit, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. So, in order for us to enter the kingdom, we have to be purified. And it goes on, this precept shall be an ordinance forever. Well, its fulfillment will be an ordinance forever. In Numbers 19, uh, uh, where do we see this phrase, living waters, in the New Testament? Um, so, not in Numbers 19. Uh, so, 
the woman at the well, which is a sign of the marriage between Christ and, and, and the Gentiles, uh, Jesus answered and said to her, If thou didst know the gift of God, and who is he that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou perhaps wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. So John's gospel is the wedding feast of the Lamb, which is only understood through the church. And so the red heifer sacrifice shows us the mystery of the blood. The red heifer is a type for for the sacrifice of Christ. It's a rare sacrifice. Christ is fully God and fully man. Sacrifice outside of the camp of the Mount Olives. Jesus was sacrificed outside of the city on Mount Olives. Sacrifice was to purify both Jews and Gentiles. Paul tells us, for you're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized in Christ, have put on Christ, Jews and Gentiles. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male or female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then you're the seed of Abraham. Heirs according to the promise. There's just so much here. And the red heifer is without blemish. Christ is without sin. The red heifer has never been yoked. Christ freely went to the cross. Uh, the red heifer, you see images of scarlet wool and wood is added to the sacrifice of the red heifer. Jesus is, was dressed in scarlet and mocked, and his blood flowed from the wood of the cross. The mixture sprinkled on the people from a hyssop branch, which the hyssop branch was a sign of healing. So through baptism in the blood of the Lamb, we are healed from sin. So when you only know religion of anti-Catholicism, you separate from the deep mystagogy of Christianity. And the early church taught this mystagogy to the catechumens right before receiving the sacraments. Uh, people should read St. Ambrose's work on, on the mysteries. And Paul said, consider us as dispensers of the mysteries of God. Well, Irenaeus said all the apostles were priests. From mystery we get mysterian, sacramentum, sacrament. So consider us priests as dispensers of the sacraments of Christ is what we have. The, do you want to uh, say something in here? No, I was just painting my glasses. So the Greek fathers following St. Paul called the sacraments the mysteries and uh, uh, Scott Hahn does, does, does a great job of really explaining this, and this will start mm -hmm. to bring us into, uh, deeper into the mystagogy. Uh, the Greek fathers, uh, uh, Scott Hahn says, the Greek fathers following St. Paul called the sacraments the mysteries, and they are indeed the fulfillment of all the successive covenants in the mysterious plan of God. The church and her apostles and in turn, their successors serve as stewards of the mysteries of God. The early Christians explained the sacraments by means of a method they called mystagogy, an initiation into the divine mysteries. The hidden plan of the saving work of Christ, mystagogy moves a Christian's awareness from the visible to the invisible, from the temporal to the eternal, from the human to the divine, from the earthly to the heavenly, 
from the sacraments to the mysteries. So typology shows us how Christ fulfills the Old Covenant. Mystagogy shows us how Christ sends the Spirit to extend his fulfillment to us, to bring us into his new covenant that is risen and ascended in glory is the new covenant, and it radiates out through the Spirit to encompass each one of us through the liturgy of the, uh, and the sacraments. Scott Hahn writes this in uh, Consuming the Word. When I actually, you know, first actually decided to, you know, study my faith, he, you know, he was the first one I went to when, mm-hmm. you know, he used to have, you know, big old these uh, boxes full of full of tapes, <laughs> and I used to right. sit down and, you know, just listen to all these cassette tapes, you know, in, in my in my free time. So putting together, consider as priests as dispensers of the sacraments of Christ. Uh, in the mystagogy, we see precursors to baptism in the phrase water and spirit. So Jesus says we must be born again in water and spirit. So both water and spirit is present at creation, as we see in Genesis uh, 1, uh, during the flood in Genesis 8, when the Israelites left Egypt in Exodus, when Ezekiel prophecies about the new covenant. Ezekiel prophecies about the coming baptism when he says, and I will pour upon you clean water. You shall be cleansed from all your filthiness, and I will cleanse you from all your idols. When the Israelites left Egypt, they were protected by the, the fiery pillar. We look at this as a sign of the Holy Spirit. They crossed the Red Sea. Here we see the blood of Christ. While Moses stood uh, with his staff representing the cross, you see water, blood, and spirit, uh, spirit every, everywhere. And since we're not too limited to time today, let's let's look at uh, one of St. Ambrose's examples of mystagogy. So, let's see here. Ambrose writing to the catechumen says, Testimony, all flesh was corrupt by its iniquities. My spirit, says God, shall not remain among men because they are flesh, whereby God shows that the grace of the spirit is turned away by carnal impurity and the pollution of grave sin, uh, upon which God willing to restore what was lacking sent the flood and bade just Noah go up into the ark. And he, after having, as the flood was passed off, passing off, sent forth first a raven which did not return, sent forth a dove which is said to have returned with an olive twig, you see the water, you see the wood of the ark, you see the dove, and do you not hesitate to see the mystery? The water, then, is that in which the flesh is dipped, that all carnal sin may be washed away, all wickedness is there buried. The wood is that on which Je- uh, Lord Jesus was fastened when he s- suffered for us. The dove is that in the form of which the Holy Spirit descended, as you have read in the New Testament. Who inspires in you peace of soul and tranquility of mind? The raven is the figure of sin, which goes forth and does not return. If in you, too, inwardly and outwardly, righteousness is preserved. Boy, I would love to have, uh, you know, a, a thousand, uh, you know, catechists of, uh, of that caliber to, to teach catechism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Amen. So, uh, you want me to go on? Yeah, keep keep going. 
Okay, so another example showing us the imagery of the blood being applied at baptism is when the Israelites were told to spread the blood of the sacrificed lamb on the lentil and doorposts, making the sign of the cross, actually when they did this, and showing us the imagery of the Trinitarian baptism. And of course, they had to eat the lamb <laughs> after the application of the blood, so the angel of death would pass over. And of course, Jesus is the true lamb of God, uh, which you know we eat after our baptism. So, Isn't it amazing here, though? Isn't it amazing, though, that some of our Protestant brothers and sisters clearly see the typology of the crucifixion, but they fail to see the typology of the Eucharist here, which to me is just as clear? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's uh, They won't see what is Catholic. <laughs> right, right. And, and and I don't know if you know there's there's a lot of good Protestants I just don't understand it I mean a lot of people are really in love with Christ and they're totally dedicated to you know charity and things and I I just don't understand it but moving on one of the verses Protestants fail to see and understand is Titus three five uh, to a Catholic who lives obedience to the faith in the sacramental life Paul is obviously referring to baptism here but Protestants in Protestantism simply does not go past the part of being saved, not by our own justices, but by grace. So, again, Paul does not need to use the word baptism here. Writing to the Bishop of Crete, and uh, he doesn't even need to use the word born again every time he describes the effects of baptism, uh, which is grace given freely. And to those who are already uh, – doesn't need to use it to the people who are already baptized into the church. So right. if we read, let's see here. It, it also applies to Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. It's exactly the uh, same exactly. thing. Exactly. And that, that grace right there is all the sacraments. It's the laws written on our heart. That faith is obedience to faith. The works he's talking about that, that were the boast, that was the second legislation of Mosaic law, the ritual law that uh, the uh, – uh, Jews baptized in the church were boasting about keeping, thinking they're closer to God right. than the Jews. I mean, than the uh, Gentiles in the church were. Right. So, so we go into Titus, and uh, we are not saved from past sins, which includes original sin through our own justices, but through the grace given freely of the lava regeneration. Paul here is showing us baptism through type and heavenly reality in the image of the Levitical priest that needed to wash in the bronze lobber before entering the veil, or as some of the modern versions of Titus 3.5 say, the bath of rebirth. So and on the Dewey Reigns, we, we read, not by the works of justice we, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the lobber regeneration and renovation of the Holy Ghost. English Revised Version says, not by works done in righteousness, which we have done ourselves, but according to the mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration. But these things look, look obviously like baptism. So in this washing is, again, the purging of past sins, like both Peter and Paul referred to, which we discussed earlier, is purging of past sins through the mystical application of the blood of Christ and regeneration part of being born again. I think it's obvious it is also obvious that those of the born-again movement are in a great state of error that is to the detriment of their very souls, you know, and all of this is gospel. Mm -hmm. 
Right. So what they you're breaking up a little bit. And of being born again, what they have done is they've actually removed themselves from the very blood of Christ they claim that they're saved by. Yeah, and that's that. You know, that's that diabolical, you know, uh, separation there. <laughs> so. What is amazing is that Paul, who shows us this mystery of baptism through the image of the bronze lover, uh, also shows us what happens after we move forward from the bronze lover. He does this in, in different areas because he's discussing things with people who, you know, he lived with for up to three years, but he's also doing things where he's a little ambiguous because he's, if letters were intercepted during this time, by you know by Pharisees or by Romans, you know these letters are would be very, very controversial, especially to the Jewish faith, so he goes on, having therefore brethren a confidence in entering into the holies by the blood of Christ, a new and living way which he hath dedicated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and the high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart and fullness of faith having a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with clean water. So <laughs> there we go again. He mentions being washed with clean water, which the Levitical priest did before entering the veil, which is fulfilled in the flesh of Christ. So he mentions that the blood of Christ is present in the sacrament, which gives entrance into the flesh of Christ. So this shows you how we are given entrance into the spiritual reality of the holies, and even the Holy of Holies, because during the Holy Mass, the veil is rent from heaven to earth, and the Holy of Holies becomes one room. So this is being born again. This is gospel. So participation in the true Passover with the hosts of heaven, connecting our souls to this eternal spiritual reality, is the primary reason for baptism. Jesus tells us you are not of the world. If you are of the world, the world will know its own. So the world does not know the body of Christ. Of course, the flesh of Christ we entered by our baptism, which is being saved by the blood of the Lamb, is also the church, as Paul tells us, where he writes, Husbands, love your, your wives, as Christ also loved the church and delivered himself up for it, that he might sanctify it, cleansing it, here we go again, by the laver of water in the word of life. So scripture is this seamless fabric of this love story between a perfect groom and an imperfect bride. And Christ says, the greater love than this no man hath than to lay down his life for another. And this is the whole mystery of the consummation of the marriage of God and man. So we have shown the mystical nature of how the blood is applied, including mystagogy. We've shown how baptism is being purged from past sins, which redeemed us to Christ as his bride and flesh as his church, which is needed to unite with the heavenly host in the true Passover. You can't do this, you know, outside of baptism because nothing unclean uh, can enter it, uh, according to Revelations. And this also means the spiritual reality of the true Passover. We have shown how baptism is regeneration and entrance into the flesh of Christ. So 
let's look at this word promise now, which, which I talked about earlier. Peter says, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. And in this context of baptism, he says, for the promise is for you and for your children. So, so many people miss this word promise. Now, Israel Zoli, who was the chief rabbi of Rome during World War II, uh, before he converted to the Catholic faith, he, ex- he explained that Judaism was the promise and Catholicism is the fulfillment of the promise. So the apostles understood this, and they understood that entrance into the promise was fulfilled through baptism. So Paul writing to the church at Galatia, who was living the sacramental life of Christianity, says, for you're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of them baptized in Christ and put on Christ. And he goes on, and uh, we, we, we referred to this before, but now we're emphasizing these words. And if you be Christ, then you are the seed of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. So Paul tells us that the promise includes entrance in the act, into the actual family of God. And this is not a metaphor. This, this is a heavenly reality. There is no speaking in metaphors here. There's, there's not saying that, you know, I'm, you know, this is just a type. Uh, in Romans 9, in Romans 9, he says, not as though the word of the God had miscarried for all are not Israelites that are of Israel. Neither all are, are they that are the seed of Abraham children, but in Isaac shall they seed be called. That is to say, not they that are children of the flesh are the children of God, but they that are children of the promise. Mm-hmm. Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, for the promise is for you and for your children. But they that are the children of the promise are accounted for the seed. So in addition to entrance into the family of God, in order to spiritually unite with the hosts of heaven and the Holy Mass, which we see in what we just discussed in Hebrews 12.22, we need to be divinized in order to share in God's one divinity in this spiritual reality. So are we? Peter, who explained that we enter the promise fulfilled through baptism, writes, as all things of his divine power, which appertain to life and godliness, are given us through the knowledge of him who hath called us by his own proper glory and virtue, by whom he hath given us most great and precious promises, that by these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Now think of this. At the Council of Jerusalem, James explained that the kingdom of David has been reestablished in the church. Jesus said, unless you're born again of water and spirit, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus said there are weeds in the wheat planted by Satan in the kingdom. There are no weeds in the kingdom of the eternal state of heaven. That's perfection. That's your perfect joy with God. There's There's just love. So to be born again into the family of God is to be born again into the flesh of Christ, the Catholic Church, weeds and all. So Protestants, uh, are you truly born again according to Scripture, or have you separated from be born again through a construct of man aided by Satan in the goal of separation from the Catholic Church? I know this sounds really harsh, but you cannot find truth. You cannot find, I mean, you cannot find unity without truth. So the only way those outside the church gets past this is through having enough love for Christ in order to die to self. So this promise fulfilled 
is also entrance into the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood. If you ask a Protestant if he is a member of the royal priesthood, uh, he would say yes. He would say, I am a member of the royal priesthood through simply faith. So this is also part of the false construct. It is foolishness to think that you can become a member of the royal priesthood through simply belief, and being a member of the royal priesthood requires performing an act of the priesthood with heaven itself. Paul says, for as often as you shall eat this bread and drink this cup, you will show the death of the Lord until he comes again. Paul says you are not participating in the office of, well, you're not participating in the office of the royal priesthood without participation in the church that shows the death of the Lord in the true Passover for the general redemption of the world before the Father through the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So more of the errors of the false construct created to separate people from the Catholic Church. So everything above uh, a course, including a change of heart toward love for God, is being born again, is regeneration in the family of God, and this is the gospel. So to finish off, uh, again, this was a faith from the very beginning. Hippolytus in 217 writes, the father of immortality sent the immortal son and word into the world who came to man in order to wash him with water and the spirit. And he begetting us again to incorruption of soul and body, breathed into us the spirit of life and endued us with an incorruptible panoply. If therefore man has become immortal, he will also be God. And if he is made God by water and the Holy Spirit, after regeneration of the laver, he is found to be also joint heirs with Christ after the resurrection from the dead. Wherefore, I preach to this effect, come all ye kindreds of the nations to the immortality of baptism. And of course, he's not saying that we will become a God. He's saying that we will unite with God mm-hmm. in, right. in, in the one God in order to have an eternal life. Right. Yeah, I was going to ask you to make that distinction because that's a very important distinction. I understood what you mean, but there are a lot of people that will throw out a verse like this and say, oh, see, Catholics believe that you you know, you know, actually become God. Um, but this you referred to it earlier as becoming divinized. And what you're saying, what, what Luke is saying here is that we actually participate in the divine nature. Well, if you're going to deny it's the only that, way, it's the only way we could tr- per, uh, participate in the true Passover. Yeah, if you're going to deny that, then don't talk about the blood of Christ. Don't talk about uh, how you're washed in the blood of Christ if you don't truly believe that we are partakers of his divinity because if we are not partakers of, of that divinity, uh, it's bad news for all of us because that means that, that we have to overcome our sin through our own efforts. And uh, that's not going to work out very well for me, Luke. How about you? <laughs> <laughs> he who knows what is right and refuses to do so, for him this is sin. Yeah. Wow, you, you really... You really knocked it out of the park tonight. This was a really, really great uh, presentation. I and I, 
have to be honest with you, I hadn't really pondered, you know, when we talk about being washed in the blood of Christ, I kind of focused more on the Eucharist in terms of my uh, interpretation of those verses. I hadn't really made as, as solid a connection with baptism as you made tonight. So uh, for making that, for that connection. And uh, we did it just under the wire of the 90 minutes. Uh, we're in the last minute. Would you close us with a prayer, please? Let's just say in our Father. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us a stay of daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. And just one last programming note. Uh, this was last night that we do the Luke Haskell Show on a Friday. Luke is going to be going to Mondays starting on the 21st, and, and we're kind of moving things around strategy-wise. It, it's all for strategic purposes. But starting on the 21st, the Luke Haskell Show will be on Mondays. Luke, fantastic show tonight. Like I said, you knocked it out of the park. Uh, God bless you, and you have a wonderful weekend. You too.